Picture this. You wake up in the morning to a grueling iPhone alarm, roll out of bed, and put together breakfast. As you walk to the gym, you dodge scaffolding and turn up your music to wash out the sounds of construction. After a workout, you head to the nearest WeWork to start a day of work. In just a couple of hours, you've interacted with just a few of the many ways real estate is changing. Cities from New York to new players like Denver and Seattle are growing and developing by the second. Brick-and-mortar stores are being replaced by e-commerce. E-commerce stores are actually opening brick-and-mortar locations. And co-working and co-living spaces are becoming the norm. So what will the cities of the future look like? On this episode of The Bid, we'll speak to Ben Young, head of BlackRock's U.S. real estate business. We'll talk about how real estate has been and will continue to be disrupted and what that means for how we live and work. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We hope you enjoy. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today on The Bid. Thank you for having me, Oscar. Happy to be here. So let's start with the basics on real estate. I'm thinking about a personal residence when I say the word or the term real estate, but it's really much more than that, I think. It is, and it's a very good question. When we're talking about real estate, what we're really talking about is the building blocks of society, actually. It's the land and the buildings on it that are utilized to support the normal functions of the economy. It's the four main categories. We call it the four main food groups. And the types of commercial real estate are office, apartment, retail, and industrial. Together, these sectors actually account for trillions of dollars in U.S. property value, with millions of people employed in the investment and management of these properties. And my suspicion is that the real estate industry, like virtually every industry in the world these days, is being disrupted. So when you think about what's disrupting the real estate industry, are there any themes that we should be aware of? Absolutely. What I would start with and say is, look, the needs of people and businesses are constantly changing, and the real estate environment needs tend to adapt. But most changes are gradual, right? Adding dog walks to apartment buildings or moving heaters away from the base building office walls to increase window height, but there are also major long-term disruptions to real estate. I think the first that comes to mind to myself and probably everyone else is e-commerce. E-commerce is the main disruptor, but you can't forget about a couple more, and those are the sharing economy and 5G. So start with e-commerce, because you're right. I probably have an Amazon package at home that I have to pick up. So I'm guessing that's sort of where you're headed with this. Exactly. We're all aware of how easy it is to order something from Amazon, as you just noted, and how the internet has made price discovery as simple as a few clicks on your cell phone or your iPhone. But what's interesting is consumers prioritize speed and convenience when shopping. 39% of consumers rank speed as the largest factor when choosing purchases online versus 23% actually say price was the determining factor. So this makes e-commerce competitive actually with traditional stores, allowing online sales growth to be actually quite rapid. This in turn is actually creating more what we call demand for industrial or logistical space around the United States to warehouse all of these products. Consumers are quickly being accustomed to ordering things and arriving really quickly, right? My daughter thinks if it's not arriving there in two hours, there's a problem. Oh, for sure. <laughs> we absolutely all need next-day delivery. So what are the demands on space that are required in order to be able to fulfill what your daughter wants? 
we've done some estimations, and actually, we think we're going to need 28 football fields per week. Think about that. 28 football fields per week of new industrial or logistics space to be leased by 2021. I mean, it's phenomenal. This is clearly resulting in healthy rent growth and price appreciation for the warehouse or industrial space. At the same time, and it's important to complement this, that we're not calling for the death of the shopping center. Centers anchored by grocery stores, which are less susceptible to online competition, and experiential retailers, such as restaurants and gyms, are actually performing much better than malls or the large power centers that I used to visit and my daughter doesn't visit these days. My daughter constantly reminds me that, Dad, you can't get your hair or nails done over the internet. So there is a place for retail and the business models are a bit more defensive in this e-commerce economy. But one last component, which is really interesting and puts a twist on retail, there's a new demand coming from an unlikely place. I'm gonna come back to e-commerce. E-commerce companies are actually looking for storefronts. Companies such as Bonobos, Warby Parker, and even Amazon have opened up retail locations. So the goal is not just to have more store sales, but to improve their customer loyalty and then in turn drive more online sales. So you've done a nice job covering e-commerce. Now let's go to the sharing economy, which you touched on earlier. And this is a relatively new term, really, when we think about it. I was reading that by the year 2021, it's estimated that 86.5 million Americans, it's almost a third of our population, will be using the sharing economy. So what are we talking about exactly when we use that term? The disruption of the sharing economy is absolutely happening in real estate. I would call this thing a unit, or as I would coin it, it's a unitization of everything. And what do I mean by that? Think back to Apple, what they did and how they utilized technology. They figured out how to sell a single song from an album. It was revolutionary to break down the whole into its parts and meet consumer demands, and even charge a premium on this unit basis. Today, there are 35,000 flexible workplaces in the world. We Work Alone now accounts, believe it or not, to be the largest private leaseholder in markets like New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C. And these flexible workspaces have broken down an office lease into these smaller units. In other words, you can rent an office space for a week, a day, or even hours. That was unheard of before. And the consumer, again, as I said, is willing to pay a premium for this individual unit to have that flexibility and experience, not unlike that individual song from Apple. But the office market is not the only space being disrupted by this sharing economy. There are companies that provide shared conference room space. There's even a company that is starting to unitize retail space, believe it or not. What does that mean? The asset class that many people thought is dead or is dying is being unitized where companies can lease space for a year, a month, a week, a day, or even an hour like the office space. And what's really fascinating, as sort of I alluded to before, is that these e-commerce companies are starting to leverage this technology to lease physical space on a short-term basis to improve their own sales. Go figure. E-commerce is helping physical retail. And so you mentioned WeWork, and I imagine Airbnb sort of lives in this category as well, unitization. But there's also companies like Uber and Lyft that are conducting some form of unitization, as you used that term before. How does Uber and Lyft affect the real estate market, or does it? It does, but I would say on a longer-term shift than rather a near-term disruption on real estate. 
it's an interesting statistic. If you think about it, less than 20%, believe it or not, less than 20% of U.S. adults have ever used a ride-sharing service. Right. So being in New York, you think 100% uses it. But if you think about the economy, less than 20% uses that. The rate of adaption is clearly becoming shorter and shorter, so that'll increase the size. But it's still a long-term asset class, and it will take time to affect real estate. But ride-sharing and the prospects of driverless cars mean we need less parking, not more. This means space can be redeveloped into a higher and better use. We're just talking about malls. Mall owners have real estate that's dedicated to parking. So you have to think about repurposing that. How can you reincorporate it and make it flexible? Think about parking decks. They're typically slanted or inclined on every floor. Well, what about making them flat and just having a ramp at the end to repurpose the space, ultimately in parking decks, to make better use out of that? And I think if you step back and think about cities, and this is really an interesting statistic, is that cities in general, 20 to 35 percent of their land is devoted to parking in general. Thinking about that massive redevelopment opportunity is pretty exciting from a real estate perspective. I feel like my whole life I've wished I owned parking lots because it just seems like such a lucrative business, but you're making me think that maybe that's not the way of the future. You also touched on 5G, by the way, as another disruptor. What did you mean by that as it affects real estate? Global urgency to deploy this 5G is heightening competition between governments, companies, and investors to achieve 5G leadership and capture a multitude of new market opportunities. Advances in technology such as these driverless cars and even battery storage will have material implications for real estate, real assets in urban areas. And as I relate it to real estate from my perspective, we see it particularly in the construction industry with the use of drones, of how to figure out developing, taking pictures, how is a architectural design of a real estate building going to be designed is leveraging this 5G technology. Believe it or not, wearable technology is all transforming the way we construct buildings. Ben, let's switch gears here and talk about cities. It's estimated that two-thirds of the world's population will live in cities by 2050, which would be double the percentage of what it was in 1950. Personally, I'm actually raising a family in a city, and I don't feel like that's odd anymore. So what is actually driving this movement to cities and away from maybe the more rural or suburban areas? So am I in the city, and I don't feel different either. This is clearly indeed a phenomenon that's going around not only in the U.S., but around the world. Cities have been leading the areas for job and wealth creation, Oscar. This is largely a function of where talent is choosing to reside. Young, educated workforces have been drawn to this, what we call live, work, play environment. And it's areas like New York City, but it's even areas like Japan. The overall population, and I think a lot of people know this, is declining in Japan overall, given the aging population. But what people don't necessarily realize is in cities like Tokyo, the population is increasing and increasing at a rapid rate. So it's that desire to be in those major urban cities to have that live, work, play. But what's really important to remember is cities are going to need to adapt and be smart. They're going to need to continue this technology and infrastructure improvements and the connectivity between this real estate and infrastructure. In cities, therefore, the landscape is changing. You and I both work in New York, and anybody who's visited New York recently will not have missed the Hudson Yards project on the west side of Manhattan, where there was previously, I think, just barren land. And now it's sort of a city within a city. So do you see more of these 
like micro cities developing in the likes of New York and maybe Tokyo? No doubt, Oscar, no doubt. Hudson Yards is an example of a creative economic development. If you think about it, Hudson Yards is essentially being built on newfound land in Manhattan. They basically are placing large plates above rail yards that park many of the trains we use on a daily basis in the city. But the developers have been able to build on top of this. And what they're really creating, to your point, is this micro city within a city. We've seen even a similar development in Boston. You think about the build-out of the seaport area and that seaport district from an area of older industrial sites to one of new offices, retail, and apartments. And speaking of apartments, recently in New York, there was some legislation that came across about rent affordability. And this has implications both for people who are looking to rent, but then also implications for the landlord. So talk to us a little bit about what that legislation was and your view on it. And are we going to see more of this in other parts of the world? No doubt. And it's an interesting question, Oscar, as you talked about it from both an owner and a renter perspective. Homeownership in many markets has declined for the last decade. I mean, this has happened for a couple of reasons. Delayed family formation, high student debt. I'm facing that now with my daughter going off to college, so I'm living and breathing that. And job growth occurring at higher rates in urban areas that I just talked about. So a key measure that we actually follow to understand how all these factors interplay with apartment demand is what we call rent affordability. Simply, a rent can only rise so high until the trade-off between home purchase with a mortgage makes more sense. But in most markets, we see a favorable backdrop for apartment investors and renters. High tenant demand, rising incomes, but as mentioned, rent levels attractive relative to the cost of home ownership. Now, in New York, to your specific question, it really has come into play. There was legislation passed I believe on June 14th, and what it was called was housing stability and tenant protection. And the bill passed key reforms that really put much more stronger controls in place for rent-stabilized or rent-controlled multifamily units and makes that deregulation from an owner's perspective, whether it be for high-income earners or improvements made to the unit, uncertain, right? So it looks like more rent-stabilized units will stay there for longer. And it has affected, Oscar, over a million units in New York City. And look, while we expect there might be some modest hits to value from an owner's perspective, we don't expect market distress from the landlord's perspective because many are well-capitalized and low-leveraged. But demographically, the emergence of the millennial generation in the workforce has been a large driver of multifamily demand. And these millennials— highly educated with the jobs that we talked about, commanding strong incomes, are choosing to work in the cities. Housing costs are high, but they're able to afford it. They're delaying it because of the student debt. They're delaying family formation. So the demand for these rents in these big cities are continuing. So it's meeting both landlord and renter demand. I was going to ask about millennials, and they seem to be less interested in owning a home as opposed to prior generations. Is that a permanent trend? Or will the millennials, when they're turning 40, 45, as opposed to the ages they're at now, will we see the home ownership rates increase? It's an important cohort to talk about. But I'm also going to mention other cohorts because we need to put this in perspective. It's interesting to see the decisions made by what we call Gen Y, which is the millennials. I'm actually a Gen X, can't believe it, but I am. And what the millennials are doing, they definitely show a preference for this live-work play. 
No doubt about it. But it's also important to understand where they came from, Oscar. If you think about their growth, they grew up in one of the great economic boom times of their generation when they grew up under their parents and off to college and now. But on the other hand, I think about my daughter's generation, which is now going to be called the Gen Z. She's 18 years old. And she grew up in families that experienced the Great Recession, right? So think about putting that generation in that perspective. How are they going to view real estate and life given that backdrop? Will they be more conservative? Will they think about the silent generation before the baby boomers and how they reacted to the economy? It's all very interesting. Do I have the answer of how they're going to affect real estate? No. But I'm absolutely confident about one thing. They're going to embrace technology and it'll be a critical part of their lives. It seems like the younger generations also care a lot about sustainability. We talk about ESG or environmental, social, and governance considerations. So how does that affect real estate? I've seen buildings that say they're green buildings. Is that sort of the way to think about it, or is there more to it? Yes, a bit. I'm glad you said that because they're literally not green. But right. they're involved in this what we call environmental, social, and governance, or ESG. And I think what's important to note is, look, real estate provides essential services and tangible benefits to society. But at the same time, as we talked about, their physical structures occupying space in the communities that they serve. So naturally, they're going to have an impact on the needs of society through this environmental and economic impact. The best thing I would say, and to give you a description, is let me give you an example. We own a 1.8 million square foot building in the Port of LA or the Port of Los Angeles. It's a boring industrial asset if someone look at it. But what was really exciting given our intertwining with our real assets and our infrastructure, we were able to look at the real estate value and say, how do we create value, not just as an owner, but for the community and the employees around? And long story short, what we were able to do was to connect with one of the largest solar panel developers in the city of Los Angeles. And we leased out our roof to the solar panel developer, and they installed over 50 acres of solar panels. It was the largest solar panel installation in the world until Apple's headquarter came by. So now we're the second largest. So what did it do for us? It gave us a $3.5 million free new roof. It gave us income for 10 years. But what else did it do? It created enough power to power 5,000 homes with renewable power in the city of LA. That's powerful, but it's not enough. That renewable power mitigated 500,000 tons of what we call GHG or greenhouse gas emissions. If you put that in perspective, it's approximately taking off 100,000 cars off the road in one year. Just as importantly, the rooftop was also installed by US veterans who are now skilled in solar panel installation. Oscar, I call that a win-win-win, right? It's a win for the investors. It's a win for the residents. But just as importantly, it's a win for the community. It's a great story of multiple facets of sustainability. And somebody in L.A. listening to this is hoping they heard that you actually physically took 100,000 cars <laughs> off the highway. It would massively improve their traffic situation. But, Ben, to think about your career in real estate, you've been doing this for over 30 years. What's the one thing that has surprised you the most about the market and how it's changed? Well, first of all, thank you for dating myself, Oscar. I really appreciate that. But the one thing I would say, and I think this is true for real estate, but for everything else is the only thing that remains the same is change. 
And it's interesting. I recently read an article about the Koch brothers or the Koch family. For those who may not know of them, they've made a fortune on old school industries like oil and gas. But what they recently said about embracing technology is amazing. They said, do it or you'll end up in the dumpster. Totally shocking coming from that group. Billionaires who made a fortune by traditional means recognize that technology will disrupt every part of their life. And yes, what I would like to say, unitize everything. And you've alluded to a lot of the things that are already changing in real estate, but if you had to look forward another 10 years or so, what else do you see evolving in this sector? I mean, no doubt it's technology. If you really think back, it wasn't really until 2007 when the iPhone came out. That's 12 years. Think about what technology has happened in those 12 years. All aspects of real estate are changing due to technology. New demand drivers, new threats, new tenant models, even new technologies to underwrite and analyze the management of properties. There's never been a time of more technological change in real estate than now. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm going to end with a rapid-fire round. And in the spirit of looking ahead, I'm going to ask you to tell me if you think the following things will happen in 5, 10, 30 years or never. So are you ready for this? Sure. Okay. Let's go. Brick and mortar is replaced with 100% online shopping. I'm going to go with never, Oscar. But it's not in the not-so-distant future that the share of e-commerce to total sales will be much higher. We think that's going to increase at a rapid rate. There will always be a place for physical retail. But the utilization of that physical space is going to be evolving, like I mentioned before. More defensive retail, experiential, all will continue to support physical retail demand. Autonomous vehicles surpass traditional vehicles. It's a more difficult question. I'll get to the time frame at the end of my thought here. But the advances in technology are definitely accelerating in this space. Large investment is being made by automakers as well as governments that are trying to create new ways to connect and smarten the infrastructure. So really, regulations may need some time to catch up to how quickly technology is going. But it's funny. Back to original time frame. I think autonomous vehicles will be a significant part of our life in five years, but my daughter doesn't think so. So who's embracing technology now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Scooters supplement traditional public transportation. I was actually recently on vacation back in July with my family in Paris, and we were just taking a tour down the River Seine, and it was interesting. And so many people, including myself, use scooters to do some sightseeing down by the river. Within a couple of minutes, I figured out how to download the Lime app, how to sync it with the scooter, and use it. So there is a place. I recently went on a property tour in Los Angeles, and downtown Los Angeles, there were scooters not only every corner, but every block scattered all over the place. That's a whole other question of how we fix that. But I do believe they will support public transportation. It will change over time, but it's really in the near future. It's this year and next year where it's starting to support public well, transportation. Well, and I can relate because the town that I live in has just had a whole army of these scooters unleashed on it recently. So I'm seeing the pros and cons to it. The last one for you is hyperloops or what we know as high-speed trains between cities come to fruition. Again, 5, 10, 30 years or never. Good question. The Hyperloop system is one piece of technology that has a real potential to disrupt 
a lot of key locations and bring cities together that either have high car volume traffic or even high air traffic, right? But while it's an uncertainty and innovation that I think is going to occur over the next century to give you a time frame, Oscar, high-speed trains are an area where the U.S. definitely could see some benefits. But you're going to need private and public stakeholders who are engaging this together. And the price tags are really steep. So it's not just about technology. U.S. infrastructure needs a fair amount of improvement and a lot of money to bring the scalability to market. In 30 years, maybe. Ben, this has been incredibly insightful. You mentioned your daughter a number of times. I think you said she was 18, which, if I'm doing the math, means you're going to be paying tuition and housing costs for a couple of years. So your real estate background is going to come in handy, I think, here. Thanks for joining us on The Bid today. Thank you very much, Oscar. And I think that I'm going to need another 30 years of experience for that. (laughs) This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone, plus 44-020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 200-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. 
For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock, Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock, Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.